the most important jobs that God has given to humans is, is being a mother and raising children, whether that be biological children or adopted or even spiritual children as you uh, seek to help us, you know, parents like me, uh, raise our children. And I, I say that um, first because uh, just through seminary and just through uh, interest, I've read stacks of uh, biographies, and one common trend in biographies was, was the impact that their mothers made over and over and over. These great men and women who have made world-changing impacts were impacted greatly by their mothers and set on a trajectory. And uh, I would say n- not only the biographies, but from my, my own experience and the experience that I see around is um, I've got a godly mother and it's just been so impactful. I'm, I may not uh, have the same impact as some of these greats out there, and, and you may not either, but we are all world changers, and we can thank our mothers for that. Although I do understand, and uh, Sonny even reminded me this morning, not everyone uh, feels like they had a great mother. And I would say Mother's Day can be an opportunity uh, for God to, to remind our hearts that there is forgiveness, uh, that that. Mothers are fallible too. They will make mistakes at, at just varying degrees, and so we can forgive them and honor them. We are called to honor our father and mother. It doesn't say your good father or your good mother. We honor them uh, no, no matter how they did. So mothers, you're awesome. <laughs> and um, if my wife were in here right now, she, she's oddly enough mothering right now, and that's why she's not in here, uh, but I'm just so thankful. Well, let's get into the sermon We are picking back up, we're picking back up in the book of Genesis, so if you want to go there, Genesis chapter 2 in your Bibles, and at this point we have seen uh, the the six days of creation and God resting, but then it zooms back in in chapter 2, it zooms back in to the creation of mankind. And two weeks ago, we saw the creation of man. He was made perfect, and he was in a perfect location, Eden, and there was no sin, there was no sorrow, there was no annoyances, there was no, no anything like that in the garden. Everything was perfect, but we saw last week that it was not good for man to be alone. We, we saw that that didn't mean that Adam was imperfect in some way or that he was created imperfect, but that it was not good for him to be alone. God did not create uh, mankind to be alone, and so God created woman. And just to, to remind us, uh, the woman was, was a creature, yes, just like Adam, a created being, but she was also fully created in the image of God, fully bears that honor and even responsibility of being created in the image of God. But one part in chapter, Genesis chapter 2 that I didn't cover last week, and we'll hit this week, was the fact that the first woman was also the first wife, <laughs> right? It wasn't just that, that Eve was created, but that she was also joined to the man in marriage. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I want to tell you, if, if you are in desperate need of marriage counseling, this isn't the sermon. This is not going to get into uh, the, the nitty-gritty daily, this is what, how you should talk to her, and this is, you know, um, maybe you could try this. It's, it's not going to be one of those sermons. This is going to be one of those sermons that make the counseling make sense, okay? This is going to be foundational. This is what we build the counseling on. This is uh, what, what later in the Bible, when we're instructed on how to do our marriages, 
it is built on what we see here in Genesis. Because we can ask, what is marriage? You know, what, what is it? Why do people even bother getting married? We'll learn all that today. And I, I'm going to end up spending all my time talking about what isn't my sermon, but I do want to say, if you hear that I'm going to be talking about marriage and it causes you to, you know, cringe a little bit and you might maybe groan, oh, we're going to talk about marriage, I just want to tell you that I, I get it. I, I understand that there are uh, any of a number of reasons that marriage could be a, a sensitive or a painful or shameful topic for you. Uh, may, maybe you want to get married, but it hasn't happened yet for you, so this is kind of soft. Like, well, of course I would love it if I had a husband or had a wife, and I would, I would do things perfectly if I did, right? You know, that's what I thought. Um, maybe, maybe you were married at one point, and for whatever reason, one reason or another, that marriage has ended in divorce. And so this is a, a tender, an emotional topic that, that brings up those past feelings of, of maybe uh, regret or shame or pain from the ways that you were treated. Maybe you grew up in a family, uh, you know, where, where you say, I don't want marriage because I saw the way my parents did it. I, I, don't, I don't want that. Don't, don't tell me that marriage is a good thing. I saw what marriage does to my mom or did to my mom. And we, we have all these different reasons. I would even say, Maybe you are in a marriage right now, but you know deep down you're not doing it right. <laughs> you, you know you're not treating your spouse in the way that, that God has given us foundationally uh, from the beginning of creation. And so you don't want to feel condemned when you talk about it. How about this? Uh, let's, let's all raise our hands if we have ever seen a bad marriage, been a part of a bad marriage, heard about a bad marriage, you know, let's, let's raise our hands and, and just go ahead and say that this is a sensitive topic for pretty much everyone. So you are not alone. And I would also say that we need to understand that all of us come to God's word as sinners. All of us equally in need of God's grace. And that is the beauty of God's word. That is the beauty of the gospel is that what we have done in the past really is not what God is speaking to. God is speaking to us about, okay, this is where you are. You've had these past experiences, these past hurts, committed these past sins. We're not going to worry about that. If you trust in Jesus to cover over those sins, what we're talking about today is, what are you going to do now? From this day forward, what is marriage going to be thought about by you? What is it going to look like for you? So that, that's where we're at, all of us sinners in need of a savior all of us if we are married we have failed in one way or another again to varying degrees so we're going to look at marriage again a, a sensitive topic but one that that god speaks into over and over again one that is vitally important for, for the health of our families which means the health of our church which means the the, the reaching of the nations with the gospel all stems back to, to this, this idea of marriage and family. So we need to understand it. Let's go ahead and read it. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, a helper, make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here, here we go into the marriage. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is God's word. That's what we're going to study today. Let's pray and ask God to bless this time. Father God, we desperately need you for this sensitive subject of marriage. We desperately need you for this vital subject of marriage. Because we know, Lord, that the world wants to attack our marriage and family. We know that Satan wants our marriage and families to, to crumble. So God, help us to understand the foundations of marriage. Show us where we may have been erring in our understanding and erring in our, our view and practice of marriage and change us, God. God, we cannot do this on our own. Without your help, we'll want to reject this teaching. Without your help, we will want to stop our ears so that we don't hear it. So God, soften us. Soften our hearts so we can learn from your word and learn your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so marriage. We've just read about the first marriage. And again, this is so foundational, like so much else that we see in the Genesis account. This was to be a pattern for the rest of time. And so what do we learn about marriage from this text? As I uh, read and studied this text, um, there's one truth that, that really jumped out to me and that I just couldn't get away from. And I would say that this is probably the most foundational thing about marriage. Okay, this is point number one in your notes. The most foundational thing about marriage. Marriage is of God. Marriage is of God. It was his idea. It's his doing. It's his institution. We'll see that in verses 18 through 23, but even before we get there, I just want to remind us how uh, revolutionary this thought is that marriage is of God, because we live in, in a society, in a culture that says, make marriage what you want it to be. Define marriage the way you want to define it. You know, this is just a, a social constitution or institution that we've created, so, so maybe we don't even need it. Maybe we shouldn't even bother getting married. Maybe we should just cohabit, you know. Um, maybe that's all we need. But we see here, marriage is of God. All right, verses 18 through 23. It says in verse 18, which is right from the beginning, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. We're going to pause. I'm just going to keep reading and pause, Okay. 
who was it that pointed out the need right there? Was it, was it Adam that says, it's not good for me to be alone? No, it, it was God. God is the one who points out this need to Adam. The verse goes on. I will make a helper fit for him. So who was it here that decided they were going to do something about this need that the man had? Well, obviously God. God, God is the one that he says, I will make a helper fit for him. It goes on uh, to, to show uh, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the all, live, all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit from him, for him. So only at this point, is Adam even aware of his need? We talked about this last week, that the whole point of uh, God bringing, parading these animals in front of him was for Adam to realize, man, none of these animals, none of these birds are, are like me, yet they all have a pair. They all have a male and a female. And only at this point does he see that there is no helper fit for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Here we see two things. We see that, again, Adam now sees the need. He, he's caught on. But it's not Adam who does something about it. It's, it's God who puts Adam to sleep. The first anesthesiologist right there puts him to sleep. The first surgeon, uh, you know, takes uh, some of his flesh and some of his rib and God forms this woman, this, this helper fit for him, one who is like him yet different, as we talked about last week. God did that. And then we see here that it wasn't Adam who went searching out this, this creature, but it says God brought her to the man. Only then do we see verse 23, Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So again, it is only after God has pointed out the need, shown it to Adam, and then put Adam to sleep and made a woman and brought her, only then does Adam even realize what the solution was. Every step of the way, it shows that, that God, that God is the decisive actor, initiator, institutor of marriage. I don't think institutor is a word, but we're using it. G marriage is of God. Marriage is of God. Why does that matter? Again, we, we live in a time, and this is nothing new, but this has really come on strong the last uh, 50, 30 years or so, that, that we say marriage, oh, it's just a cultural convention. This is just something that we have contrived. You know, we thought it would make us happy, so we, we joined ourselves in marriage. You know, we, we thought, uh, well, I want a good place to, to, to raise children, so we'll join in marriage. But here in Genesis, we see that this was not man's idea. Marriage was not of man. It was absolutely 100% God's doing. Marriage was of God. He joined them together. That is the foundation, okay? Marriage is of God. And the reason that that is the foundation for everything else 
is that if marriage is of God, not just something that we thought up and decided to do, if marriage is of God, then it means that God gets to define what marriage is and what it should look like. If he invented it, he created it, he saw the need and made the solution, and he, he brought her to the man and joined them together, it makes sense that he is the one that would define what marriage is. And that's number two in your notes. Marriage is defined by God. He explains to us what marriage is. Let's look at how God defines it, verses 24 and 25. This is just a little commentary uh, that, that's, that's inserted in Genesis that, that God inspired Moses to put in here. Verse 24, 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So again, let me just show you who's talking here. It, w- would Adam and Eve say, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Would that even cross their minds? Why would that not cross their minds? They don't have a father and a mother. That, that, that wouldn't even make sense to them. They would not say this. There's no reason they would say this. So we know that it was God who sang it, but we also know that this is not just, a, uh, just Moses and his thoughts. I'll show you why that is. We, we read this earlier uh, in the beginning of our service. In Matthew 19, 3 through 5, Jesus tells us who says it. Uh, verse 3, Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up, came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Who, who created them from the beginning, male and female? God. And then it says, verse 5, And said... So he created them, and he said something. He said this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus is saying, the same person who created male and female, that he is the one who said this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and become the two shall become one flesh. It's, it's God giving this definition. I just want to make that clear. God, God, marriage is of God. He invented it. He instituted it. And then he defines it for us right here in the creation account of mankind of this first marriage. So how does God define marriage? There's so much here, um, but I'm going to try to do my best to to make this understandable uh, what's going on, just different principles we can draw out of this definition. So I'm going to list for you um, things I see here, and and you can see it in in the verses as well, I hope. First, marriage as defined by God is made up of one man and one woman. One male, one female. That's it. That is the only option. We see that. Verse 24, Therefore a man, one male, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. It doesn't say to his spouse. It says to his wife. That's one female. God's definition of marriage does not allow for any variation. Now, in our day and time, people are getting married to their Barbie dolls and all sorts of weird stuff. I mean, seriously, I've read articles about people, they, they say, well, I just really love it, and so they marry it. But more common 
would be uh, homosexuality and, and things like that. And I, I understand people might say, and we don't have time to unpack all of this, but they, they might say, but I'm attracted, I'm not, I'm not attracted to the opposite sex. So, so it would only make sense that I'd get married to, to the same sex. But I would say, from what we see here in Genesis, there's so much more that, that would need to be said here, but from what we see here in Genesis, it simply is not an option. It simply is not an option to marry someone of the same sex because that is not God's definition of marriage. It wouldn't make sense. His definition is the only one that matters. He's God. If he defines it as one male, one female, then that's all that matters. That is the definition. And I say all that really with, with a deep sensitivity to people who do struggle with same-sex attraction. I have had several friends, close friends, that, that struggled with this. And, and it's something that we have to walk through. But we see here it simply isn't an option to, to follow that inclination because it is a sinful one. It is a sinful one. And I, I struggle with different sins. That, that's not my particular one, but if I did, that would be okay. God would give me the grace to walk through that type of attraction, but it would not be an option to marry. All right, we see that in Genesis. Only one man, one woman. Second, as defined by God, marriage means that we leave. We see that there. Marriage means we leave our old allegiances and priorities and hold fast to our spouse as our new highest earthly allegiance and priority. We, we leave our old allegiances and priorities. Uh, I see that there. It says there, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. He shall leave his father and his mother. Especially when this was written. This is somewhat true today, but especially when this was written, a, a young man or, or even a young woman growing up, their highest allegiance would have 100% been their parents. Their dad, in general, you think about it in these times, their dad, in general, would have also been their boss. If their dad was a shepherd, guess what they were going to be? <laughs> they were going to be an under-shepherd, under their, their father. If their dad was, was a farmer, they were going to be out there farming. Their dad was their highest allegiance, their, their father and their mother. You can think uh, in our day, some of the other allegiances we might have, it, it may not be necessarily to our parents, although that is still true, we might have uh, allegiance to our boss at work, right? We're, we're supposed to do what he says. We might have an allegiance to our group of friends. No, no, I am close to them. They're my friends, and I, I stick by them. Allegiance to our friends. Or it could even just be allegiance to, to whatever we believe gives us value and gives us worth. But those, we see here, are no longer your highest allegiance, allegiance once you get married. You shall leave your father and mother, that highest allegiance. And I would also say old priorities fall into that. The priority of a child was to honor their father and mother, to obey them, to, to do what they said, and to please them. That was the highest priority of a child in those days. And you can think, again, of just examples of priorities we might have uh, pre-marriage. I would say a common one um, pre-marriage is just to have fun, you know, like that's a priority. I remember when I got married, a bunch of my friends were like, what do you mean you can't just come out all the time? You know, like <laughs> that's, that's no fun. Th that's an old priority that people have that must be left. An old priority may be to climb up the corporate ladder. 
My priority in life is to, to you know, uh, move up in my field, to, to make more money, to have a higher title. Or maybe your highest priority before marriage was to have a perfectly clean, pristine house. I can tell you right now, a husband's probably going to mess that up for you. And so we've got to leave all these old priorities is what it's telling us. Your newest priority, or sorry, your, your highest priority, earthly priority, is no longer to have fun when you get married. It's no longer uh, just to make money and move up that corporate ladder, have that perfectly clean house. Your new highest priority is to hold fast to your wife, your spouse. And that's what we see there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, those priorities, those allegiances, and hold fast to his wife. To hold fast here, th there's so much here. Uh, um, <laughs> to hold fast here is the idea of uh, to hold close and to never let go. This actually, the same exact Hebrew word is used many times in the Bible to talk about God's covenant with us and the ways that we should uh, honor his covenant with us, to, to hold fast to God, to cling to him. This is your new highest earthly allegiance, right? We talked about the father and mother. So that means that any time one of those old allegiances in any way threatens the welfare of your spouse, you defer to your spouse. They are your allegiance. You don't take care of your friends anymore. Well, they're my, my, my little crew. I don't care. Your, your spouse is your new crew. <laughs> like, your spouse is, is your new highest allegiance. Well, my, my boss will be angry if I, if I don't do this. I don't care. <laughs> your spouse is, I don't want to say your new boss, but you get where I'm going. They're your new <laughs> highest allegiance. And even uh, he or she, your, your spouse, is your new highest priority. No longer is having fun your highest priority. I'm not saying you won't ever have fun again, by the way. I have a lot of fun in my marriage. But your hobbies, your work, your, your clean house, your, your, your all these other things that you think are so important, these high priorities, they don't necessarily have to disappear, but they always and every time take into account the desires and needs of the spouse. Old allegiances, old priorities, we forsake them when we need. Leave your father and mother, and then we hold fast. We cling to with this covenantal, never-let-go allegiance and priority with our spouse. And one thing that I mentioned there, and uh, we'll talk about it some more, is that that is a covenantal term. This cleave, this hold fast. So, marriage as defined by God means that God joins you with your spouse so that you hold fast to them as one flesh in an unbreakable covenant. I know that was a lot, but basically, marriage as defined by God is an unbreakable covenant. There, cut out all the clutter. Unbreakable covenant. Again, in that same passage that we saw uh, Jesus talking, you know, quoting this passage, here's what he says. Matthew 19, 3 through 6. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That is, to, to break this covenant. Is it, is it lawful? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Here we go. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Here is Jesus' conclusion. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
That is his understanding from Genesis 2. Jesus, the greatest expositor ever, by the way, when he uh, tells you what a verse means, he's right. (laughs) He is the living word. Um, So when Jesus says here that this whole uh, leaving and cleaving and, and becoming one flesh means that what God has joined together, man should not separate. It is God, again, who is joining this couple together. We, we, I hope you know this, and if you've been to enough weddings, hopefully the, the pastor or whatever has said this well enough, but in a marriage, there are three actors. There is a husband and a wife, and there is God who is joining that covenant together. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, I want to be sensitive here. I want to be sensitive here. I know there are, are, are some people in here who have most likely sadly and sorrowfully had to walk away from a marriage. And, and that, that may have been the only option that you had. The Bible actually does make some allowances for marriage. Jesus goes on to talk about that in that passage, but for, for unrepentant, unrepentant adultery, being deserted by an un- unbelieving spouse, Paul talks about, and even in the case of abuse, is a, a sort of desertion, a sort of breaking of that covenant. So in those sad instances, divorce is, is an option. It's to be treated as the last option, by the way, because God has joined this together. But it is an option. And I want to say, if, if that's happened to you, you've had to sorrowfully, sadly walk away from the marriage because of the other person that's hard. That's terrible. I'm sorry you had to go through that. But I also, I don't really know all your stories, but there may be some of you who it was you who was the problem. Maybe it was your hard heart. Maybe it was your inability. Maybe you just got tired of the other person, so you walked out. And here's what I want to say to that. It's in the past. We are all approaching this same God who gives us his word at at a level place as sinners who have sinned against him. I have sinned against God in so many different ways, but his forgiveness and his grace is always there. Always there. Even if you were the one who did these things that made divorce happen, that made no option for your spouse, it doesn't mean that there's no, no chance for you, no hope for you. God's grace is enough, and I hope, if that's been you, that you have sought his grace and even been transformed and changed. So, answering a a common question so i got divorced and and i'm now remarried is that a legitimate marriage since it was an unbreakable covenant in the first place yes it it is a legitimate marriage and you are looking from from now forward and i just don't have time to go through all the verses but biblically we see that that is a legitimate marriage samaritan woman had five husbands that means there were five or four anyways legitimate marriages and then the person she was with wasn't her husband at the time but they were all legitimate marriages and so we, we move forward, right? All right, so unbreakable covenant. One man, one woman, leaving old allegiances and priorities, clinging to the wife, the spouse. Unbreakable covenant. Fourth, we saw this uh, earlier, especially in verse 18, that in marriage, defined by God, spouses are to carry out their God-ordained responsibilities, roles, and ways of relating to each other. Again, this is stuff where it gets much more complicated, and this is what I mean. This is foundational. But God said in verse 18, 
I will make a helper fit for him, a helper suitable for him. The understanding there is that the man, Adam, was to be the head, the leader, to carry out this this leadership, this this provision and protection for the woman, and she was to to, to help and and follow, to to have this disposition of affirming and encouraging his servant leadership. I gave you definitions of biblical manhood and and womanhood uh, last week. But I'm going to uh, give you the the husband and wife version of that right now. In ways appropriate to the relationship, this is how it was last week, so that much more so with the wife, the husband is responsible for the servant leadership, provision for any needs, and protection of his wife for her good. If you guys had that written down, I'd say underlined for her good. Like, that is the responsibility, the role of the man to, to lead as a servant. Protection, provision for her good. The wife, on the other hand, in ways appropriate to the relationship, so here we're talking about to her husband, a woman is to have the disposition to affirm and encourage the servant leadership, provision, and protection of the worthy husband. So, you have the husband sacrificially leading, providing, protecting, and the wife saying, yes, lead me, provide for me, protect me. And that that, that takes all different forms, but the fact is we do not get to choose who is the head of the family. (laughs) There are many times I would like to switch that role (laughs) and let Hallie go ahead and be the, the servant leader, sacrificial leader of our family, but I don't get to do that. In many ways, Hallie is stronger than me and would, you know, lead better. And I try to use her, her strengths, you know, to, to help me. But I still have the responsibility, the role of leading. And we see that here in Genesis. Finally, we see this in verse 25. Marriage as defined by God is to be a safe place. Marriage as defined by God is to be a safe place. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had no reason to feel any guilt or shame or embarrassment about their naked bodies in front of one another. Now, I would say they had a bit of an edge on us since there was no sin in the world and they they were perfect in every way. But the fact is, they 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 were naked and were not ashamed. There was this, this openness. That, that word naked is not only talking about, it is talking about physical nakedness, but not only, it's also talking about this emotional and intellectual nakedness. They were able to be transparent with one another about their thoughts, about their feelings. I am naked before you. It, it's almost just a figure of speech. You think about that, that they never had to be worried about shame from the other. That is a safe place. That is what marriage is supposed to be. There are all sorts of things I could say right now, and it'd probably get me yelling about what a marriage looks like when it is not a safe place. About when husbands take advantage. About when wives put down, berate. But we're not going to go too far down that path. Marriage is to be a a safe place. This is foundational. Verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2. 
So I'm going to just list those for you. Summary. Marriage as defined by God is one man and one woman leaving their old allegiances and priorities and holding fast in a covenant to their spouse, carrying out their God-ordained roles and responsibilities in the safe place of marriage. That is marriage as defined by God. Anything that deviates from that is not marriage. Certainly not the way God would have us do marriage. I think of with the roles, even when the husband isn't, you know, doing his role perfectly, it's, it's still a marriage, but he, he's not carrying out God's definition of marriage, you understand. So, that's what we see. God, uh, marriage is of God, and God defines marriage. But I think about this, and we have this creator God makes the heavens and the earth, the, the, the sea and the lands and the plants and the animals and man and woman. You don't see giraffes getting married in Genesis. You don't see antelope or dogs or fish or anything else getting married. And I think that's interesting, right? That only in all creation, the only creature to get married it's human. And I think that's something that we should take note of. Because if, if marriage is of God, marriage is defined by God, then it only makes sense that marriage would carry the purpose of God. He has a purpose behind it. And that's number three in your notes. Marriage carries the purpose of God. If he went through the trouble of, of marriage being of him, creating it, ordaining it, bringing them together, defining it for us, then he has a purpose behind it. Again, I don't want to spend too long here, but I can just list to you some of the purposes of marriage. This is, this is going somewhere. This will culminate, okay? <laughs> We're going uphill to see the apex of God's purposes. But here are purposes of marriage. To multiply and fill the earth. That is uh, reproduction. And uh, we'll get here later, but sex is a part of God's plan. Like, we don't need to be ashamed of sex. We need to be ashamed of sexual perversions anytime that sex happens outside of the marriage bond, then yes, we should be ashamed of sex because it is sin against God's plan. But sex within marriage, we should not be ashamed of. This is part of God's plan, that man and woman would be joined together in sexual relations and fill the earth. We see that in Genesis 1.28, Right after God creates male and female on, on day six, he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I think that's very fitting for Mother's Day. Mothers, you are fulfilling the original mandate God gave to mankind as a mother. <laughs> You're being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. This is a, a beautiful thing of marriage. Now, again, I'd say not, not every woman has physical children, and I get that, and that can be hard. But I'd say even in that instance, see, see how you can be a mother to, to younger uh, men and women. But it is God's plan, his original plan. This is pre-fall. They didn't deal with inf infertility and things like that at this point. God's plan was that they be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And again, we honor that, that amazing um, role of mothers in that. Next purpose of marriage that I see is to allow for the highest, most intimate level of relationship. 
okay? The highest, most intimate level of relationship happens in marriage, and God wanted that. Now, why would God want mankind to have this most intimate level of relationship? You got to work with me here. Mankind, male and female, was made in the image, in the likeness of God to reflect him. And God wants us to have relationship, this intimate, close relationship, because God, in and of himself, is a relational being. What I mean by that is before you existed or the, anything in the world existed, God was a relational being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see that uh, for the first time in Genesis, let's see here, where am I at? Genesis 1.26, let us, God says, let us make man in our image. God has this amazing Trinitarian relationship within the Godhead of, of honor and love and intimacy within the Godhead. We can't go too far down the Trinity road, I know, but we are to reflect that. That, that is part of, of what, how God made us different for relationship and marriage specifically to image God with that most intimate level of relationship. You think about that from our passage right now. He makes them one flesh. One flesh. That's the most intimate. That, that one flesh word is actually talking about you, you become family. And I realize we, we say that she's a part of my family, but that, that's the idea. It's saying not quite literally do you become blood relatives, but pretty much. You could study that word, one flesh. It's amazing. It's this intimate level of relationship. And now, I told you, there are other reasons uh, for the, the joy and flourishing of peoples. You know, I could add these in. But the most important, the most important and highest purpose of marriage, the reason marriage is of God, the reason God defined marriage is marriage is to display the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is to display the relationship between Christ and the church. This is interesting because Paul, in Ephesians 5, uses verse 24 that we're studying right now, Genesis 2:24, in order to show that marriage's purpose was to reflect Christ and the church. I'm going to read through um, Ephesians 5:22 through 32, and you'll see all these different dynamics that we've been talking about. All right. Verse 22, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That, that's to Christ. This, this, this as, similar way as you would to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, so in this instance, in marriage, this institution of marriage, the man is meant to represent the headship of Christ, right? God has the man be the, 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 the leader, the sacrificial leader. He's got that headship. And the woman is to display the church in their faithful submission. Goes on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, in the same way as Christ did that, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So we see here that husbands are not only to, uh, to show, to, to uh, display the headship of Christ, but the sacrificial love and leadership of Christ is to be on display. You see that I love that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That's interesting. Maybe, maybe that has something to do with a one flesh union, two becoming one. He's saying basically they are one flesh. Verse 31, moving on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, that's Genesis 2.24. He's quoting this mystery, talking about Genesis 2.24. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul, this authoritative, inspired writer, says Genesis 2.24 was actually talking about a little more than met the eye. Yeah, there was this mystery that was revealed. So Adam and Eve wouldn't have fully understood this. You know, they hadn't sinned yet, so there was no need for a Savior. Christ had not become incarnate. Christ had not died for them. So they wouldn't have understood that they were picturing Christ in the church. Even Moses and the Israelites who first received this, 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 this book of Genesis, who first received it, they wouldn't have understood this fully. They would have understood covenant for sure. God had made the, 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 you know, the Mosaic covenant with them, and you have the Abrahamic covenant before that. So they'd have understood covenant, but they would not have understood the new covenant of Christ dying for them, sacrificing himself for them, and that salvation by faith as the church clings to him. But that, even though they didn't know that, is the full nature and purpose of marriage. It was a mystery, okay? He says that. This term mystery, he, his point is not that it is still a mystery, it's that the mystery was there. They didn't see it, but now it has been revealed to us. This, this leaving the father and mother, holding fast to the wife, becoming one flesh, was really, at its deepest level, referring to Christ and the church. There are some crazy implications here. What that means is that God did not create marriage here in Genesis 2, day, day 6. God did not create marriage and then later on say, you know what, that's kind of like how, how Christ is supposed to be to the church. You know, that it's kind of like that. That's not the way it went down. In the beginning, from Genesis 2, God created marriage in order to show Christ in the church. That was the purpose of marriage. Again, procreation happens without marriage. It happens in the animal kingdom all the time. We could have filled the earth and subdued it, <laughs> anyway, without marriage. But God said, I want marriage. And the highest purpose for that was to display the relationship between Christ and the church. You might say, well, how did God uh, plan all that before there was even sin and stuff? You know, how could that possibly be? You know, how, why would he picture something that hadn't even happened yet? Guys, we're talking about God. <laughs> he knew that mankind was going to sin before he even created them. He knew that he was going to send his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He knew that he was going to do that 
And so he created marriage to picture what he was going to do. Let me show you this. This is all through the Bible, but just one easy example. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We see in Revelation that the Lamb's book of life, our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Salvation was already planned out before the foundation of the world. Again, there's a lot of uh, crazy theology there, but it's just true. The purpose of marriage, the reason, the foundation, uh, it was from God, it was defined by God with the purpose of displaying Christ and the church. Let's think of some implications of that. That means that, that Jesus' relationship to the church is covenantal. Jesus' relationship to the church is covenantal. We should see that from marriage, even, um, to, to, to display him. Yes, we're going to screw up, but we realize that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. It's, it's covenantal. Jesus' relationship to the church is sacrificial. And husbands should be displaying that sacrifice. We even recognize that, that this relationship to the church, as, as pictured uh, in marriage, is a mysterious union. What I'm saying here is, there's all these times in the Bible that says that, that um, I am one with you, be, be in me, you know, uh, that, that Jesus, we have been united with him. You think about all the times that the Bible says that, that we are his body. We're the, the body of Christ. We've been united in a mysterious union with Christ. That's amazing. Inseparably united. So, what do we do for, with this? I think there's uh, so much we could talk about. But these are our foundations. Marriage is not a cultural idea. Man did not admit it. It is of God. And so that means we follow God's definition of marriage. What marriage should look like. One man, one woman, leaving, cleaving, safe place. And it means that we do that with our proper roles, knowing that we are displaying Christ in, that, in the church, and that is the highest purpose. That is weighty. That is weighty stuff. I'll tell you, if uh, your highest reason for getting married is because you are lonely, if that's your highest purpose in marriage, if your highest purpose in marriage is for convenience, you know, joint bank accounts would be awesome living under one roof, if, if you know, even just the, the fun of it, if those are your highest purposes, you're, you're missing this amazing purpose. God had before the foundation of the world that he instituted on day six before the fall. Yes, we can have fun, and, and being married does help you oftentimes be less lonely, and yes, it might help you financially, might not. Depends on how <laughs> one or the other is with the credit card. Um, and, and it might be, you know, a lot of fun and, and all these things and all these other reasons we might get married. But the highest reason, the highest calling in marriage is to display Christ. 
We can remember that God did create and define marriage in these ways for, for the highest human flourishing. That if a husband would treat his wife this way and a wife would, would re- relate to her husband this way, then humankind would flourish through that. So I want to ask, if you're married today, is your spouse flourishing? Is your family flourishing because of the way you're carrying out your role? This is, this is, this is from the beginning, the way God had it. And then as we think about this, this picture that we're to be displaying, not only to ourselves, but also to a watching world of this, this covenantal union, this sacrificial love from the husband, this affirming submission from the wife, following that we're displaying Christ in the church. But, but I ask you, if someone were to look at your marriage, would they see that? Would they see Christ in the church? Now, I, they probably wouldn't walk away and say, like, oh, that looks a lot like Christ in the church. Probably not going to happen, but they're supposed to get this picture, and we can explain it to them, and it is supposed to be a a testament to what Jesus has done. And on the opposite side, when we do differently, we're marring the picture of what Jesus has done. Praise God for his forgiveness for the ways that we do that. So as we come to this communion table, after learning about these foundations of marriage, how are we doing on this? Are, you know, there's all sorts of books you can read, five love languages, uh, you know, um, all these things that can maybe help your marriage, but if you're missing the foundation, it's still going to crumble. Even if you know how to talk to your wife or to your husband well, fill their love tank, that's cool, but you need the foundation. Marriage is of God, defined by God, with the purpose of God. Now this communion table is reserved for those who have trusted in Christ Jesus. And it's a, a beautiful picture that I, I don't want to overlook, is that this, this idea of the relationship between Christ and the church doesn't just end with this first marriage, or, or even with salvation on the cross. But the Bible tells us that we are eternally, if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, we are eternally the bride of Christ. That's beautiful. United covenantally for our flourishing. You think about all these good things about marriage, these purposes of marriage, Jesus will fulfill those perfectly for eternity with us. But that is only possible because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Your salvation, your your, your, uh, eternal life depends on this marriage union between us and Christ. It's a beautiful picture. Some of you in this room might, might say, I haven't even trusted in Christ. Uh, he, he's not uh, my, my eternal spouse, as it were. But I hope you've heard today the ideal, the, the, the uh, primary desire from God of marriage, and what that should look like, how good it is. And I hope you've seen the beauty of Christ and his sacrificial love and leadership of us, the church. You can trust in him today. You can trust in his work you can be a part of that union. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that the body and blood we're going to hand out here is uh, a picture of the new covenant that was bought by the body and blood of your Son. We recognize that our marriages, our families do have no hope 
unless something big happened. Unless someone was sent into this world to sacrificially die for our sins and make us right with God and to transform us. But God, we see that that has happened. So Lord, I, I don't ask for the people in this room to have strength in and of themselves to do marriage the way you ask them to do it. I ask them that they could do it through the power of the body and blood of the resurrected Christ. God, let them cling to you the way that we are supposed to cling to our spouse. God, let that transform their marriage. And God, let their marriages transform our church and let our church transform our community and on to the ends of the earth. God, let us not take the foundations of marriage lightly. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen.